You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Kirk, the race dreams have started. The race dreams where you triumphantly cross the finish line first and hordes of people uh, pat you on the back? Rarely. Things go wrong. Invariably, things go wrong. This is something that goes back to high school for me. And it, it only happens when I start taking training seriously or when I have like something on the line for the race. I'd never dream about races until I do. And that's when I know the race means something to me or that I'm fit. Okay. It's like a phenomenon that you could, you could read pretty far into it, but I, I, I know when a race matters or when I'm in shape by when I start dreaming about a race. Well, and I'm sure those who listen regularly know you have the Tennessee mile coming up this weekend, which is like a six hour looped format race. Mm -hmm. I guess before you even tell me about these dreams, now I'm curious, you said you have these dreams when a race means something to you. Yes. So what does this race mean to you? I don't know if I've asked you that question. That'll give your, your dreams more, more meaning to, to the audience. Well, it's, it's not necessarily that it has to mean something. It, it's that there's some, there's something at stake. Sometimes it just means I'm, I'm getting fit and it's like my body starts incepting dreams into my mind. Like you need to race. And other times it's because I've been thinking about a race for a long time. And I think that's this case. And other times because the race is super important to me. So for example, I haven't had a race dream. I didn't, I don't know if I even had one for Jacksonville ever, Okay, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. Looking back, it's telling. I might've had one. I don't know, but I had one the night before city field. I didn't have one when I decided to go. I had one the night before and it was terrible. It was one of those where you get lost. The the course doesn't, doesn't go the way it's supposed to. I can't find the course. I mean, I can hear people finishing. It was a disaster dream, which most of mine are. Yeah. I always so I have two types. And before I won my first race, it was always crossing the finish line first, like coming through in this glorious triumphant moment when that's all. I aspired to do in my early years. And then the other one is going, winning or leading the race and going off course. I've had that yeah. a dozen times over the last couple of years. And then this moment of panic and oh shit, and then mm -hmm. not finding your way back. I wonder if that's like a thing in OCR or trail running, if that's like a common theme. I don't know. I have three types. Uh -huh. The first is the winning. And that happens, if, if we had to break this down, that happens 10% or less of my dreams where I actually like put a race together and everything goes well, maybe 5% or less. And then the other two are even splits. The first is that I can't even make it to the start line. Hmm. Either something happens with the rental car, something happens with finding the actual venue, or I make it to the venue. Everything's going well. And right before the start, I realize, all right, I need to change into my race shoes or I need my timing chip or I want a different pair of socks or my race top I need to get. And then everything goes off the rails. The moment I turn away from the start line, I never make it back. Hmm. And then the third type is I'm in the race and something goes wrong. But most of the time, it's one of the two where it's bad. 
And I don't mm -hmm. know why they're like some psychologists should could dig into it, I'm sure, and find feelings of inadequacy or imposter syndrome, or maybe that's just how your nerves blow off steam. I don't know. I have one where, and this is another theme where I am running as hard and as fast as I can. And I seemingly am going nowhere. And like, I can't catch who's ever in front of me and there's no mm. way to do it. And I think I'm running fast, but I look down and the ground's barely moving. I'm sure there's some real deep lace shit in there psychology today so what were what were these dreams you've been having then specifically the first one was not being able to even make it to the start i had the day wrong or whatever it was i just i never got to the start and then the second one that i had last night i was at the start line everything was set i had the right shoes the right socks the right gear the weather was beautiful it gun goes off i start running and the way this race actually happens in real life is that the 24-hour racers start at 6 a.m. The 12-hour racers start at, I think, 10, 10 a.m., and the 6-hour racers start at noon. Mm. So we're the last ones on the course. The race has already been going. They stagger it so that you try not to like ever have log jams because it's a 1.1-mile course. It's mostly, it's trail most of the way. It's wide enough to pass, but it's probably at its widest 15 feet across at its narrowest, maybe five. And there's 340 feet of vert. So there's two climbs. One's closer to 200 feet and one's closer to 140 feet, something like that. And so you just run, go up, come down, run, go up, come down. And the course is like a figure eight. So it loops over itself. Once you have someone that's starting up a hill crossing over with people who are bombing down. And it works fine because people are so tired. They don't care to cross the trail. If someone's bombing down, it's their rest. But anyway, so that the, the flow of it is needed to be known to understand how the race kind of works out. But I got out on course in this dream, lap one rolling, like I'm right into my rhythm. I'm feeling so good. And the course was suddenly on a barge, a river barge that was docked at the river. Okay. You know how things don't make sense. But yeah, there's no sense rhyme. Dreams. Yeah, there's no rhyme or reason to dreams. That's not the weirdest thing I've heard. So I come around the corner, and we're on a barge, and there is a single stairway going up, and that's the first climb. But it's they're only letting because of COVID, they're only letting one person up the stairs at a time, and it's like waiting for a theme park ride. All the time I gained on the lap so far people just run up behind me and wait. And I'm so frustrated. Like I want to go around and pass, but I don't want to be a jerk. And I get to the top and I'm running through and going down the stairs is the same thing. They're allowing as many down as you want, but it's only one and a half people wide. So you can't really pass. I'm thinking, oh, I've been working so much on my downhill and I can't take advantage of it. And I come around the corner and they have a new system this year where you scan your timing chip every time you come through. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge queue of people waiting for that too. And I got so frustrated that I was debating whether I should just quit or because I want, I had a distance goal I wanted, or if I should just stay on it and just try to win the race. And then I woke up. It's pretty much everybody at the open wave of like a tough mutter or a Spartan yeah. race. So you're just living the every man's dream. I, I was so mad that they changed the course on me. <laughs> Isn't that weird how that works? Like those dreams. And I don't actually believe you can read too much into these things, but no. I, I think, uh, I think you're going to have some more this week leading up. Maybe they'll be more positive. Yeah. But you asked a question, what does the race mean to me? Yeah. And you dodged that one. What does the race mean to you? I don't know. 
I really don't know because I talked about it and I believe that it's just a, a big carrot. I did it last year with Ross and it was a lot of fun. And during it, the race director kept saying, when are you going to start pushing? I want to see what you can do. What you, you're looking too happy. You're not supposed to look happy during this. You're supposed to find yourself out here. Mm-hmm. And I kept saying, listen, I'm here to support maybe next year. And I finished and I thought, he's right. I'd like to come back here, blow it out, find something out about myself, see what I can do. And it coincided nicely with this get back into training. It was just a big carrot. It'd be nice to go there and race hard, but really it was a reason to put three, two and a half months of training together, string it together every single day. Don't miss a day. And it worked beautifully. So we got here this week and and we got an offer from Ross Weimer to take his Packer tickets or to come with him to a Packer game this weekend. But we got a call earlier in the day that someone we had spent the day with just tested positive for COVID. And we had spent like Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday night with them and, and hugged them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was, yeah. a, it was a, uh, our cousins and our in-laws. So we all went and got rapid testing and because we were not going to go to a game and I wouldn't be able to go to Tennessee if I test positive. I'm not going to go yeah. do that to people at a race. So we all come back. We all came back negative. But during that, I was thinking, I think I'd be okay. It wouldn't be this huge disappointment if I didn't get to go to Tennessee mm-hmm. because it served its purpose. But once it came back negative, I also felt great relief that I still get to go do it. So I don't actually know what it means to me. It means something, but it already served its purpose. But that being said, I've, I've run three ultras that I can think of. One was a beautiful experience, but I went into it not intending to do the ultra. So it's not a true ultra experience because half of the ultra is spending the first half dreading the second half. Right. And that changes the way you look at your every like biofeedback during it. The second one, it was a 50K trail race and it went great. And I fell apart towards the end, but I had a great experience, but it was only four hours long. So it's not quite long enough to have really bad things happen. And the third I DNF'd. So I still feel like I have a lot of learning about myself to do. So I'd like to get that experience. So I don't really have a good answer what it means to me. I think I'll find out about hour three or four exactly what I want out of this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think like if you're having the race dreams and such, um, I think you've gotten yourself to a point where it warrants maybe like some underlying hopes and dreams and expectations maybe. Secretly, well, I have expectations and goals. Well, right. Well, right. And so, along with those, suddenly becomes like an emotional investment in the outcome as well as the process. So, my assumption uh, is that there's some meaning. Like it's it's a little symbolic, man. It's uh, been two knee surgeries. You just cranked out your first Spartan. You've hopped in a few of these local little races. You've been time trialing. Like, like I feel like for some reason officially being back might be stamped, you know, at the culmination of this thing, you know, you've gone through your first build and then your first, you know, big race and then off time and then starting another cycle. Like when you get into that period where you're actually training, culminating, resting, and then starting that process again by design, not by injury, that's like a pretty official stamp on like, I'm back and I'm in the groove in like a really positive way. So I don't know. I think it's pretty symbolic. You get to the end of a training cycle by choice and then take rest by choice, physiological choice versus injury choice. That's a powerful thing, man. So I don't know. I, I can see how it's maybe 
yeah, I think it's, I, I understand why it'd be like important in that way. Whatever the race was, it doesn't really matter. It's culminating yeah. a block and purpose. Yeah. I think it's step two of four. You said in the I'm back thing. I really don't want to say that. Like the, the purpose is to say I'm back, but I'd be lying if that like egotistically wasn't tied to it. I want to be back. Well, not even saying you're back, but just like internally, like processing the fact that you're back. Well, and I think there are four steps before I can tell myself, absolutely, I'm back. The first one was having some amount of success, and that was City Field, realizing I can do this again. Mm-hmm. Like if all the best guys were there, I don't think I would have had the same result, but it at least showed me I can do this again. This is the second one, opposite end of the spectrum. Can I physically go run hard up and down hills for six hours? Like if I can do that, that checks the physical health post-injury, the rehab. I don't know if it's ever complete, but it's, I can check that box that I did it correctly. The third would be, I believe running sub 16 and a 5k again, realizing that after all this time away, I've regained enough of my speed to say I'm back speed wise. And then the fourth is having a successful showing at a Spartan at a big Spartan race against good people. Yeah. So this would get me half of the way down the line towards, I feel like I'm back to who I was. Have to be patient on those last two, especially the last one, but that's okay. Yeah. And I have, I have no timetable for that, but this is the, these first two allow me to do the next two. No. Yep. They buy you permission. Yeah. This entire time I've been running my hill loop 1.19 miles with 380 feet of gain. So it's a little bit more of each than what I'll see there, but I've been running the whole thing targeting pace. And it's been, originally it was try to run sub 13 minute laps the whole time in Tennessee, because we left last year saying if someone could hit 30 miles, that would be a really impressive performance in six hours on that course, because there's just nowhere to open up. Mm -hmm. So that would be 28 laps would get you 30 miles roughly. So the whole time I was thinking, all right, if I run sub 13 minute laps, I can hit 28 laps in six hours. And then I started finding out that I was just clicking off mid 12s. So suddenly I start thinking, okay, another month and a half from now on a slightly, slightly shorter loop. What if I can hold 12 minute laps that if I hold 12 flat and have no pit time, that's exactly 30 laps. Yeah. So 30 miles would be the goal that I'd be happy with, but 30 laps last year would have seemed superhuman. And now it's like, that's my stretch goal. So my goals absolutely are 30 miles to be happy, 30 laps to be ecstatic. And that would be 33 miles. I think that's reasonable. I I just think like if you, barring physical trauma or ailment, I think knowing that you are going to rest and recover and reset after this, like you might as well go out there and, and like push at some point. I feel like otherwise you'd be doing kind of a disservice to to the hard work. And I'm not saying push from the gun, but like strive for something, especially those last three hours. Once we, you know, start clocking in, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. All I know is like, I'm not, I don't have a ton of ultra racing experience, but like I knew I had a couple of these in the the bag, but what made them satisfying was the fact that I put an exclamation point on it for me anyways. Yeah. Like, and I know you completing is, is enough, but it's not necessarily enough. Yeah. And so I would say leaving pretty wrecked would be oddly satisfying. Not even oddly. I mean, the, the, the last ultra I did, 
I couldn't get nasty the second lap. I no. gave in when my body started to crumble. And so that checking the box and saying I'm back, that's a component to it. Mm-hmm. Finishing, I did three and a half hours at 12, 15 average in training while it was raining. And so it was a muddy ski hill and wet. So I was constantly engaging hip flexors. I was not able to flow the downhills. So I know I can complete six hours at, let's say, 12 and a half or 13 minutes. That That's, yeah. I already know that. So completion doesn't tell me racing six hours will check the box. And racing means emptying it. That's right, baby. Because I know I can race through four and a half. I did three and a half, again, at 12 and 12.15 per lap for three and a half. And that day I left knowing I could have held this for another hour before I crumbled. So that just leaves me an hour and a half left. Of misery, potentially. Yeah, but I'm okay with that. So yeah, yeah that's that's the goal. I got to hit 30 laps. I mean, 30 miles first. And by that point, there's going to be an hour left or something. Hopefully, if things are going well, and then it's just going to be keep it together and try to yeah race. Is there anywhere for people to follow along or if are you going to do any updates or anything? Or are we just going to find out when it's all said and done? I Last year, they didn't have any live updates. This year, they might. I'll be able to, we'll post about it on Instagram on the running public page if there's anything. Because the day before, I'll do my packet pickup and check in and find out. Otherwise, Lisa will be there for part of it. She'll probably, she'll do updates. Okay. I feel like six hours is just, I don't the word short enough doesn't mm-hmm. really fit because it's six hours, but it's just short enough where you don't need real food. If you don't want it, you can stick no. to your liquid calories or anything that sits well without actually chewing anything. I won't, I won't chew a bite. Yeah. If you're going longer than six and you get in that eight range, then we're talking like, let's put maybe a, a some sort of real food in you, but six hours, you probably can stick to what works. You already know that. So yeah, I like your odds. My plan is tailwind the entire time, about 15 ounces per hour that way, which gives me 250 to 300 cals, about 70 grams of carbs and all my electrolytes. And that, so that'll sustain me six hours. Well, I'll tell you what, the running public is rooting for you back and we're going to have to have Lisa on the account updating how things are going. Maybe a few snippets of you on course. I would like to see that if, if you got service there, um, I can't wait for the recap, man. Cannot wait already. Yeah, me too. Should we pay credence to Spartan Race World Champs coming up here real quick for a little yeah, bit we before should. we get into our our probably our shortest fundamentals topic we're going to have. Um, so that's why the bullshit session will be a little longer today. Um, what do you think? I, I actually feel, and I didn't think I'd feel like this necessarily, but I feel like I'm missing out a little bit. Uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, One, it's the first Spartan World Champs in my knowing of the sport in which it's not at elevation and it's not Mm -hmm. necessarily a mountain profile. And then two, um, I've rounded myself into some sort of fitness where I do think I actually could go out there um, and put out a performance. And then three, you can't control who shows up. However, um, it is the, on the American side, at least people who are going overseas you're cutting the players in about half. So you're looking at a slightly diluted field, which is no, you know, it's not taking away from anybody going, but you look at the, this all from a 10,000 foot view and you say, ah, Kirk, well, you finally got your shit together a little bit. It's a flat er course, not at elevation. And you have a diluted watered down in a sense field. You should probably 
be there. And then you go look at your passport and realize it's expired and you can't go anyways. And that's a nice soft pillow to sleep on, Bracken. Yes, it is. I would be there, but uh, visa issues. Yeah, I saw that. I went and dug it up last week. Just I was like, just in case. I was like, nope, that baby's not going to let me go anywhere. So there you have it. Do you feel any sort of angst over that race? I assume not, but I'm curious. So I did a our final fantasy OCR episode of the year with Jack and Rich Ryan. If you haven't checked it out, go check out Rich Ryan's reinforced running episode where we did our fantasy draft. And Kirk, I, I assume you didn't watch it because you're on your weekends, you're out playing, playing mountain man. I was home this weekend. Okay. So we did a long intro breaking everything down. Jack has all his stats. He has his roster of who's confirmed going and not. And then we do a, a fantasy football draft, but for, for OCR. And I started out the year terrible. Speaking third third party here, because um, I'm not involved with that. I have a little envy, but um, it's a good listen. You think so? I do. I think it's it's just it's more of a bullshit banter session. There's a good bit of ribbing going on. If you're looking for some something to keep your company. I like your prediction episodes on Rich Rich's podcast. Well, thank you. Yeah, Lisa and I were talking yesterday, and I said I think if you want to get to know me as a coach or an athlete listen to this episode, like these podcasts. And if you want to know me as like an everyday person, then you listen to the the fantasy draft episodes there. Cause you're right. It's just BS. It's just, it's great. Yeah. just conversation. That's all it yep. is. In the course of doing that, I started to get a little FOMO because there's so many North American men not going. Correct. Now the European field is always better than anyone gives it credit for. I've raced enough of them to know that they're monsters. However, if there was ever a world championship that didn't have the North American depth of field there, it is this one. Yeah. But then I remember what racing over there felt like. And it just instantly exposes, sand exposes your fitness. It's like altitude. It takes you over the edge one gear quicker. And it crumbles you one stage earlier. And I... I just have none, none of the fitness right now that would be required to race 13 miles in sand. If they find good hard packed sand at times, it wouldn't change anything for me. There's Mm -hmm. enough of the real stuff that it's going to be miserable. And, and I feel the same way for you. Like you have the fitness to go do it, but you just haven't been sand running and there is Mm -hmm. no substitute. Like if you had started three or four weeks ago doing sand running, I would, I would say, Kirk, I think you should go over there and throw your hat in the ring. But someone in really good fitness with no sand experience is going to crack, unfortunately. And there's no way around that. Yeah. But who really has sand experience? Like, if you look at the list, I don't see, you know, sure, Atkins posts a video of him running in sand five days before the race. Well, that's not right. going to really do shit. Albin necessarily doesn't have sand unless we don't really know. Yeah. Uh, there are guys who have been doing it. Yeah. Like Ian Hosick's been driving to sand dunes and running, which in Montana and Idaho they have. I've seen Mark Godet's been doing the same. Yeah. Uh, Sergey Prelegan, I believe his name is from Russia. Mm-hmm. He's been living in Dubai the last like nine months. I mean, nine weeks or something like that. And he's raced over there a ton. Richard Heineck has raced over there a lot. There are guys that are just seeking out sand and running. And I don't think there's a substitute for that. Now, engine's engine. Sand, like altitude, rewards overall engine. So those guys yeah. are going to do fine. But no, I've my general conclusion that I've come to is I don't belong there. And so 
no matter what the results are, I don't belong feeling FOMO. Mm-hmm. All right. That's fair. I think it's going to take one of those things, like we talked about threshold running and all of that, but it's one of those races where I think it's it's going to get you between the heat, because I believe, is it still an afternoon start and all of that whole deal? Yes, it will be in the low to mid-90s during the race. I mean, it's, yeah, exactly. But there's more than that. There's no shade anywhere on course. There will be no no vegetation. And the sand absorbs the sun all day long. So even if the sun starts going down a little bit, the sun, the sand's still going to be a hundred degrees itself. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's just going to be brutal. And that exaggerates people's death when they die. Like when you crumble in a race, the heat just exacerbates it. Do you think we can see somebody who is actually, what, what I was going to say is that, you know, it's going to force people to surpass their lactate threshold and go anaerobic much earlier. They're going to hit their first big sandy climb and feel like they're running in place and, they're going to rev up their heart rate into the one eighties and they're going to be 15 minutes into the race. And it could potentially lead to just some people really coming back. However, I still feel like a course like this could play out where you pull a Robert Killian and you get away and suddenly you are away. However, I also see the flip side of the coin where even some of the best in the sport, even though let's say John Albin is great at managing his effort. Well, Ryan Atkins tends to be almost, like his come from behind theory in these conditions may lead to sniping something close to the end, even against somebody who maybe is more fit, because this is the kind of course where on paper, you might think, don't let somebody get away from you. But I feel like on this one, given the conditions, when you start bleeding time, it's going to be like bleeding times in a mountain altitude race. Yes. And so it could play out where we could see big gaps that are made up, or we could see somebody risk it all and, and pull it off. But I don't see this being like, I think people envision this being like a line, a conga line of 10 people all separated by 30 yards. And there's some sort of like, you know, excitement to how close the race is. And I very much actually see it going after halfway through the race. I think we're going to have clear, clear gaps made. And I think it's going to be more of a mountain-esque with the separation versus like a flat type of terrain race. What do you think? I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think that you're right. When you bleed out in sand, you grind to a halt because there's no momentum. You have to generate every step. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's really hard to close down because there's no momentum. You have to generate every step. And so like saving and, and waiting and closing is really tough to do if you don't feel momentum. Because running in sand at 80% or 100% still requires you to so actively engage such a high percentage of your muscles on every stride that it's hard to keep momentum going unless you feel like you're tangibly separating or catching. Yep. So hanging like where Atkins hangs back and then has these huge two-mile descents in Tahoe, there is no big, long descent. Like there is not, there's no place you can roll. And so it's, even if someone's crumbling, you still have to be self-generating. The only momentum you'll have is visually catching people. And it's one of those situations, kind of like running in mud or running in super sloppy terrain where if you're doing well, it's because you're actively engaged on every stride and you can feel that energy separate when you're starting to move away from people. But it's not because you get in a good rhythm. It's because you keep the hammer down the whole time. And so because of that, it's really dangerous to be behind 
because it's easy to just get down on yourself. And then the heat and the sun and the breathing, it's just things compound quickly. So people who come from behind have to be cognizant that I'm not going to feel good. It's not like hanging back at 80%. You're hanging back and running through sand. Yeah. Well, it's one of those one of those things where you have to stay mentally engaged the entire time. Yes. Because I feel like in some races, even a mountain race on that first climb, let's say, where it takes you half an hour to summit, you mentally almost try to check out a little bit and numb yourself. But in this, like when it comes to sand running and it comes to purposefully moving your body through that sort of terrain, you can't actually just be like, I'm going to try to fall asleep right now. Because if you try to fall asleep, like it is a recipe for bleeding time and that sort of, in that sort of terrain. It really is. So it's like one of those things where I feel like sneakily now I have no experience racing over there, but you do. And you speak to its miserability. I think it's one of those things that's going to probably be the race where we see people on the finish line crumbling. I think we see people like you see at the end of a big bear beast, but maybe Mm -hmm. worse. I feel like people are looking at this race maybe as a little bit of a gift compared to Tahoe saying it's not the mountain. But I think you're actually going to see some carnage, like some true carnage. And that I'm looking forward to, Bracken, especially since I'm staying on this side of the pond. I have seen spots gone black at the finish line probably five or six times in my life. Three of them were in Dubai. Oh, boy. Hot temps like this? Yeah. Yeah, one month earlier. But it was also like 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. race time. But it's midsummer there, isn't it? It is there. No, no, no. This is there. It's cooling off. Oh, yeah. They're above the equator, huh? Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's still going to be hot. Midsummer there all year. Let's not kid ourselves, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was a little hotter when I raced, but it's later in the day now. It's, it's a horse apiece, as they mm-hmm. say. So how's the wind out there? Is it like when you get out in the open dunes, is it always like blowing sideways? Cause that could help in a sense, potentially. It certainly can be, yes. When some, and that's part of it, like it shifts. So it, it can be very, very windy, but it's not helpful. It's, it's like you open the oven and the wind that blasts out of that. Mm-hmm. Like it's not cooling and it blows sand in your face at times. Maybe we'll see some swim goggles out there. Shades. <laughs> I mean, if, a, if one of their rare sandstorms comes up, you'll need it. It's just one of those races where you can't tip over early, but I don't believe you can get disconnected. You have to be in range because you have to be able to see people crumbling. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you can't make a great move in sand and close. Because like, think about Tahoe. You get two-mile climbs, two-mile descents, long carries. There are places to get in rhythm. There will be no rhythm in this sand. Like there's no like Johnny's descending or Ryan's descending or someone's climbing. Like there is nothing that they can just say, well, no matter what happens, I'm going to have 20 minutes of this. No, you're just going to have two hours of broken strides every time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's huge capacity wins and strides that don't erode because people's form is going to crumble. So like John's form doesn't really erode. That will be helpful. If Hobie were there, he'd be my pick. Hands down. It's the people who are light on their feet. And their form doesn't erode. And I'll tell you what, I've had a lot of um, stride envy over Ryan Atkins' stride, I would mm. say. On this course, I actually don't. He's the type of stride, a little, you know, he's, he's long-hipped and he's, and he's got that nice open stride, especially for his height. But at this, you want to be making as quick of contact with the ground and turning over at a rate in which he typically does. I'm not saying he can't win because, damn it, he can absolutely win this race. 
Yes. But I would almost favor more of that less pretty stride and the quick turnover and the grind and the higher cadence because you just don't want that foot sinking in and keeping ground contact any longer than you have to. And Atkins has a long ground contact compared to a lot of people. It's why I like Albin for this race a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I like even somebody like a like a Mark Gaudet who doesn't overstride to potentially, I mean, he's coming off not that long after a 24-hour ultra win, but like, um, not saying he's a favorite to win, but I like his odds of placing better than you think just based on his mechanics, for example. Yeah. So it's going to be very interesting to see it play out. That's what I think. Yeah, part of me thinks Ryan's going to struggle in the sand. And another part thinks that his stride, the way he runs in Seattle on the slop, is going to just be right at home there. Yeah, Because he can just churn all day long. I, th- I could see a Logan struggling with his huge, like really high up on his four-foot plant or really excelling because of his super high cadence and his stride never crumbles. I could see, like I wish VJ would go because mm-hmm. it rewards mechanics. There are some guys overseas that I think could do really well. Running, I ran Vegas against um, VJ this year, back-to-back days, and they put us through about a mile and a half of sand to start. Um, And he is much longer-limbed than I am. I don't think that's a stretch to say. And I was basically sticking on him through that whole portion, which caused me to rev a little hot, and then he pulled away once he got traction, right? Which I think you could see in this race, right? People burn a little hot, and then you're going to see people who didn't spend too much in the sand pull away once they get some packed stuff. You're going to find out who is managing better than others. But anyways, point I'm making is my stride in the sand was the same length or maybe even a little bigger than VJ as he was turning over. And that means I was opening up a little too much and he was closing it down. And then as soon as we got to something that was a little more firm and you got traction, he you know got a turbo booster and I just kind of fizzled there in a sense. And it just gave me the thought like, hey, if he was, if he was there, he's got that sort of sort of cadence down Hmm. even though he's long he's not inefficient and so i think it would have played well for him but so who's uh before we move on to our topic which we'll pay maybe 20 minutes to uh to talking about that who's your pick i I mean i know you already did this on the the rich episode but where are you going i truly don't know if i'm just going to go by my own advice which is capacity and engine went out it's going to be atkins and elbin in some order Mm -hmm. but this is the kind of race where a super enduring fast runner could come out like a Gaudette or, or Ryan Woods. I think Ryan Woods is going to have a good race. Is he going? As far as I know, he's going. Oh, great. I picked him in my draft, so he better be there. Let's hope. I think Lindsay is made for this kind of thing. That turnover. Oof. But at the same time, like this is a tough way for her to go out of the sport. <laughs> If she misses a spear here, which she's prone to do, and throwing spear here can be tough because if you're not on firm sand, it's like your mechanics and everything have to be really sound to throw well with your feet shifting underneath you. Mm-hmm. And if it's windy and she doesn't have great spear mechanics, it's probably her weakest point. So if she does that here, she doesn't have that Tahoe two mile descent to run people down or technical running. It's she could win by 10 minutes here, or this could be like the one fluke time she loses. So it's it's really tough. I This is probably my hardest race to pick because you never know how people respond to this. The same way you don't know how great track and road runners will respond to off-road running, you don't know how these people in the field will respond to sand running. And the heat and the travel and the food over there and the time of day difference. Everything is going to be so odd for people that like half the field is going to be written off by the time the race starts because they're going to be so out of whack. Yeah. 
And another half of them are going to be written off as soon as the first thing goes wrong because they just like they're already at the end of their leash. Yeah, I think it awards overall aerobic and anaerobic capacity. My sleeper for this race, which is going to sound um, maybe a little left field, is on the on the men's side. I think you're going to see it boil down. I think to Alvin and Atkins, I think we're going to see a couple others stick their neck in, out there. They went all the way over there. They're going to go live and die at the front. And I think that's going to be helpful. I think most of them are going to die, but I think it's going to be a I think there's going to be players up front on the women's side. I believe that face standing is going to have a race because she took the appropriate time away. She's got some give left in her. I think, you know, she was burnt and she's finally back and has a little renewed vigor. And I still feel like her overall capacity just run is probably better than Lindsay's. Not like it's going to maybe show through on this course. However, I think there could be a surprise there. I don't know why, but I just feel like it might it might play out that way where maybe we see her back in the somewhere in the top mix, not saying for a win, but somewhere maybe surprising. There's something to say about those mental efforts that you haven't had to do for a while and banking a few of them. She's got to have some in the tank. She hasn't used any of them in the last year. So in theory, she has a stride that should work there. And when she's on, she's as gritty as anyone. I think allegedly she ran mid seventeens in a five K recently on the road. Yeah, I think so. So she's quick right now. Does she have two hours, two and a half hours of nasty in her is the question. She'll be nasty for as long as she has endurance. We know that about her. So how long does she have of endurance in her body right now? She's got nothing to lose and everything to gain. It's a good position to be in. Susanna might have the biggest engine other than Lindsay. Is she going? Allegedly. All right. I haven't listened to your episode. I don't know if it's been released, but I haven't been in the know. I believe it's out, but I guess I don't know. I don't know when Rich does his thing. Anyways, it's it's very intriguing. And it's, again, again, an example of Spartan giving a test that does not correlate to the yearly curriculum in any way, shape, or form. You run yeah. all of these races, and then we go to Tahoe at altitude in October every year, and we're like, what is this? This doesn't correlate at all. How could this get worse? Well, they found a way. You run all these races with no sand all year long, and then you go to a different time zone. I guess time zones are relevant because it's a world championship, but they put it in the desert, mm-hmm. the only desert race all year round. And that's the, that determines who the best in the world is. It's just a, it's a bizarre one-off race. Think of the Super Bowl every year was, they changed the field just for the Super <laughs> right. Bowl. It's just bizarre. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's a, it's a spectacle race. It's hard for me to even look at this as whoever wins and goes top three are the best in the world at, at OCR because it's just a weird test. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It will not take away from what they accomplish. I just don't think you can call them the best OCR athlete in the world. Unless John or <laughs> Lindsay or Ryan or someone who's already considered the best wins. So it's just bizarre to me. Spartan likes to reward versatility, I feel like. So it's just kind of in line with their character. Wait, okay, and then let's move on. But if you had to see like a true a true course then that would actually crown on a level playing field. I assume you would pick like a Eastern mountain course maybe, or would you pick a Southern um, semi like a, like a beast, but only with like 1500 feet of gain. And then it allows us to run and climb. Like what would you, what venue would you choose? I would choose the super distance. I would want a 70 to 100 minute race. I'd ideally want it right around 70 to 90 minutes. 
and I would want it to reward every aspect of what Spartans chosen to have as their brand. You would have to have heavy carries. You would have to have fast running. You'd have to have some real hills or climbing. It wouldn't have to be mountains. If it was mountainous, it would also have to have running. If it was flat, it would also have to have hills. I don't care if it's in the U.S. or not. I think it should probably switch every year between Europe and U.S. I think that represents the two biggest hotbeds of OCR. But in the U.S., I think a West Virginia Super, an Asheville Super, a Glen Rose, Texas Super, uh, I'm trying to think what else, even a Montana Super, they could find enough flat there. You could do in Europe. I don't think I'd put it in the mountains, but I'd also, if I had, if I ran Spartan, I'd have that as one. And then I'd have a mountain championship each year. Yeah. But I don't think you should reward one skill set. It shouldn't be marathon distance. It shouldn't be all climbing or all flat. If you want the world champion, you got to test it all. Yep. If you had to create a list of all the, if you wanted a well-rounded, versatile endurance athlete, where would desert running be on your list? Pretty low. Yeah. So yes, I agree rewarding versatility, but that's not versatile. That's specialist. Right. So just weird. Yeah. All right. I just think anything non-altitude where you get a little mix of everything. Yeah. Should not be altitude. 3000 feet or below for sure. As far as start elevation. And then, uh, yeah, true segmented where, Hey, like you may run fairly flat for the first 30 minutes. We might hit a mountain and use that for the next 30 minutes. And then we might finish you flat again for the last 30 minutes, something where it's, it's, it's pretty segmented that way I think would be, would be a good test. If I could pick one venue, only one, it would be the West Virginia Super. Yeah, you can do a lot with that course and that terrain yep. too, if you chose. Yep. Second would be Asheville in the U.S. Overseas, yep. there's there's embarrassment of riches over there to find the perfect race. No, let's uh let's try to talk about um try to talk about something fundamental for 15 minutes. Yes. That yeah, that this whole training Tuesday, you're supposed to learn something, if you recall. Fast forward to the 45 minute mark and let's talk about the midweek long run or the medium long run determined by where you place it in your week. Midweek long run. That's what that is. And I like the medium long run now. I shifted in time. I've, I've, I've transformed as a human. So you'll see on the running public training plan every week, we got the MWLR or the mid long run. However, you it's want actually to look MLR at. now, I think. Damn you, I, I changed it just to run a dictatorship here, Kirk. I don't like it. I still have MWLR on my, my customized training plans. But what it is, is basically, you know, it's placed in the week in which I almost look at the midweek long run as like a floater sort of day in a sense. Mm-hmm. A floater day in a sense where we have two or three recovery runs throughout the week or easy runs. We have a quality workout in a long run or a quality long run. And we end up with this, this sort of, I don't want to call it a filler day because it's not. It's definitely purposeful. But we end up with this filler day where it's like a, a player's choice almost, I like to call it, where the midweek long run is not a recovery run because we're going too long for that necessarily. And it's not an easy run necessarily, although it could be, um, because we're allowing you to put the throttle down a little bit if you so choose. And that's why we call it like it could be easily called a player's choice day where it gives you the chance to get a little more time on feet, but it's far enough out from your Saturday or your weekend long run or quality effort where you're still going to be productive then. And you choose something 
that potentially can move the needle on a skill that either needs work or you just want to put some focus on. So we like to prescribe the midweek long run, which would be, it could be anything from chasing vert, right, Bracken, where we go and Ooh. say, hey, today we're hunting vert and we're only worried about going up and down today, or we're just putting time on feet on the flats, or we're going to find technical terrain. But the one thing we don't really do is on this run, at least from my perspective, and maybe you can correct me, we're not looking at our heart rate monitor every 45 seconds. We're not necessarily trying to keep things super dialed. We're just trying to run off a feel and do it on a terrain or in a space in which is going to help us on the race course. That's how I look at the midweek long run. How do you look at it? Well, that's a good philosophy of, of, of doing it. Like from the physiology of doing it, if you take a look at what is an easy run, we've had this question asked before and, and, and that on our easy run, what is the shortest someone should run to make it an easy run? We kind of said 20 minutes untrained, 30 minutes trained. You got to mm-hmm. be moving at least a half hour to, to maintain your aerobic baseline or nudge the needle slightly, at least a half hour. But there's also an upper limit where at some point you're not recovering and it's not necessarily easy anymore. And it's usually between 30 and 60 minutes. No. That's kind of that range, 45, 48 minutes for some people. But let's just call it 30 to 60 minutes is a good amount of time to spend on just an easier recovery run. It's long enough to make sure you don't lose any fitness. If you did nothing but those runs each day, your aerobic capacity wouldn't really drop. You might even nudge it up a little bit, but you don't need recovery afterwards. It's not demanding. It's just every day you could do it day in and day out and you'd be Mm -hmm. fine. But a long run really starts to work on your endurance and your your connective tissue and your grit and your toughness. And you get into that golden zone where your every step you take is fatigued and it's beautiful. Well, this sits right in the middle. It's longer than an easy runs. And so it actually will raise your aerobic capacity. It's long enough that you're actually doing work, but it's not so long that it's a truly destructive run. It's right in that sweet spot. And so, like you said, not only are we getting the physiological benefits that are greater than a normal easy run, but avoiding the pitfalls of a long run, which is really fatiguing to your body and requires downtime afterwards, you get to choose skills to work on. Yep. And 30 minutes just isn't always enough time to get good skill work in. In a 70 or 80 minute run, or maybe even 90 that's about as long as I would do a medium long run, but that's 60, that's 70 to 85 minutes. That's long enough that you can get your body warmed up, roll through the gears a little bit, get a half hour in and then start working skill and still get 30, 45 minutes of good work in. And then you can start cutting down. You can start playing around with stuff where if you need more intensity in your week, you have some time to do that there because you're still far enough away from your big workouts that you can recover afterwards. But if you don't do anything crazy during it, you don't need recovery afterwards. So it's kind of that beautiful tweener run. You make sure that over the course of the season, when you're no longer building volume up, you can still push the needle aerobically without taking damage. Well, yeah, and I feel like, um, you know, we can become a slave to our heart rate monitors, which we've discussed before. But when let's say you're chasing vert and, and you know, you need to prep and lay a foundation in the off season for any mountain races, let's say coming up and you're out on real terrain, it's easy for the heart rate, let's say to spike and then on the ups and then drop on the downs. And you can't really put a rev limiter on that necessarily, or you can, but then it just feels sometimes counterproductive and it's nice to just go run it. 
I feel like you have one day a week where you just go running. Like, go for a run. And so play the old Lisa Cracker model. Go out and see how you feel. And you know what? If you feel pretty good that day and you're like, you know, I'm, I'm going to use it, it's okay. And if you feel tired that day, just get through it. But I just like it because I look at it as my flex day. And you know, as we get into season bracket, we throw carries into the midweek long run because it allows us enough time on feet and time to work that stuff. We throw other skill work in that might mm-hmm. be relevant to upcoming races. And I just, for, for some reason for me, like maybe it's my own personal bias, but I certainly get caught up in the heart rate monitor on recovery efforts. And it's really nice not to on this day where it's just like, I'm going to go accomplish a task and that's put a moderate amount of time on feet on terrain in which I think is going to move the needle in some capacity for me. And yeah. so it's just sort of that free, that freebie, that flex day. That's how I look at it. Um, I, I, and I don't know, like, I know initially when I started coaching with you, it was a prescription right away. And I'm wondering, cause we didn't do this in college necessarily. Maybe you did. Yeah. Where was this adopted? Where was this adopted? Well, it started initially because I wanted to work more skill into my running. I was having trouble hitting three quality workouts a week, which is what I wanted to do to to be able to work on my running speed, to be able to work on my endurance and work on the sports specific skill that I wanted. I wanted three quality days, but I couldn't get it all in. I was having trouble recovering. But to, to put one of my easy days into a skill day, I didn't feel like I was getting enough actual aerobic work. If I took a normal 45 minute run and I did carries, one of, you know, the 1200, 400 workouts, a staple that I've been doing since 2011, run for 1200 meters, carry for 400, stay aerobic to high end aerobic on everything, work the carry with purpose, easy run on the run over the course of 45, you know, 48 minutes, 45 minutes, I might only be getting a half hour of running in. And it just didn't right. feel like that was enough to move my needle. Now, I know heart rate wise, you, you still can. And it drops on the carry, but I'm still engaging muscularly. But it just didn't feel like enough. But if I did a 75-minute workout, I was still getting a 55-minute 50, run in and also getting all the skill in that I wanted. And so it just felt right. And then I'm trying to think who this coach was. It might be Joe Rubio. Oh, I wish I had this off the top of my head. They had the idea of the endless week, non-periodized training system, mm-hmm. you know, that ready to race concept. And I was doing a lot of researching of athletes at the time. And I had, I called it the race ready program or the ready to race one of the two. And I used it with athletes and I Googled that one day and he had something like that. I said race ready and he said ready to race or mine was ready to race and his was race ready, but it was just, he called it the endless season. And he was doing a lot of the things that I was kind of stumbling upon, but he had a, like a seven day and then a nine day and a 14 day version for it that you just repeated forever. But one of the staples was his middle of the week, medium, long effort. He might've called it a medium long run or midweek long run. One of the two anyways, it's to the point. I don't remember what term I used and what term he used, but it was the same, but he's a professional coach. And I think it was Rubio, but I could be wrong. Someone will correct me on that. But it reinforced that even if I'm just doing it because I'm feeling like this is a good way to go about it, there's a pro coach who uses this with athletes that go for that medium long effort. And one of his rationales was you get to do long runs less often then. If you're doing your endless season approach where you're always race ready, you can't long run every week. So you got to space it out with more time in between. 
But to avoid atrophying your aerobic capacity and development, keep a medium long run in there. It still moves the needle and it keeps you from eroding, but it's not doing the damage of a long run. So it was a combination of testing it out and just feeling what made me feel right as an athlete and then finding someone I respect that supported it. And then I felt mm-hmm. content to continue using it. Okay. That makes sense. I was just curious there. So when, uh, when is the best time for a medium or midweek long run? I think always. And it just depends on why you're doing it and how hard you're working it. Okay. So like right now, the first six weeks of my 10, 11 week build towards Tennessee, the medium long run was my only other quote unquote quality along with my long run. There was nothing else in between. So it was like half of a workout. And so I do no uphill left behind or no downhill left behind or honey invert every single week. No uphill left behind is you go for a normal run, a 60 to 70, 80, 90 minute run, but you work the hills with purpose rather than like you said, being a slave to your heart rate monitor. And if I have to power hike because I exceed my aerobic capacity, you do that to stick to the plan. Well, on this day, you don't. You get it back on the downhill and the flats, you get your heart back under control, but you actually run the uphills because it's a skill development day, not not stick to that heart rate. So my whole run still averaged out to under my aerobic threshold, but I'd spike a little on the ups. And then the same thing, the opposite on no downhill left behind. I'd run casually or power hike up. I'd run easy on the flats, but I would roll the downhills a little harder than I would on an easy run, but it was laying the groundwork for true quality work later. So it was actually a little more damaging than a normal midweek long run would be, but there was no other quality in the week other than a true long run. And so it was appropriate there where later on in the year, I'll dial back the efforts and make them a little more skill-based because I'm going to up the efforts on actual quality days. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. I I think, you know, you look at your week and I say, well, what are the good days not to do them on? Maybe the day before quality day or the day before your long run. So that leaves five other potential days. You take a day off, that leaves four. That means, hey, if you're feeling it and you want to stack a little extra fatigue after your Tuesday quality day, you want to do it Wednesday, great. But, you know, normally what we, you know, our running public training plan as we get into the meat and potatoes of the season, typically is more of like a Tuesday quality and a Saturday long run or a Saturday quality long run, which means Thursday is kind of the sweet spot in between there. It splits the two, um, allows you to, to build a little bit more fitness yet still recover and be kind of ready for your Saturday effort. And so we typically would prescribe them on a Thursday with the flow of the week. But I would say as long as you're not doing them the day before your long run or a quality effort, the day after would be okay or somewhere where you got a day between both is ideal where it just, it makes sense. And most people use it that way, but um, that's how I'd look at it. But I do think that something to it, just building resiliency with that time on feet. If you just did these shorter runs and then one quality work, shorter runs, one long run, I feel like you're leaving a little bit on the table, especially to work the skill work. Like we talked about, whatever it is, you're a shitty descender Thursday or your midweek long runs your day. Go and climb and then run hard downhill and figure it out. You're a shitty climber. Another chance to do that going up carries anything. I remember you used to prescribe a thing that I really liked was, um, you know, go run for 70 minutes today and then finish with a mile farmer's carry with 35 pound dumbbells. Mm. I want to talk about adding some skill work and some, some hustle to your day. Like that does it. And so I just, I just think that, that those, uh, that outline of where to place it in, um, would be like the rules I would follow. Yeah, you're right. The, if, if we had a classic week, it'd be 
speed work Tuesday, stamina work Saturday. Thursday is right in between. It's got a recovery day on one side, an easy day on the other. You can absorb a little work there. And it's the perfect flex workout, like you said, because if you just follow the guidelines of every day, easy runs have a hard cap on do not exceed your aerobic threshold. And we usually tell people to stay five to 10 beats below it. And the recovery runs, the hard cap is do not do anything that inhibits recovery. Our only goal is to recover aerobically. And our quality days have specific, you must get up to this level and not bo- not above this level. This is the only day that gives you a wide range of options, but every option accomplishes something. Where if you only run aerobically on your medium long run or midweek long run, you're still getting extra aerobic work and it's going to make you a better athlete. But if yep. you can have room, if you feel a little aimless or underdeveloped, you can do a little extra quality there, just a little bit extra. And it's going to be out of your system by Saturday. So it's it's the perfect day to flex into any type of athlete you are. And I think it's one of the, there's no magic in training, but it's one of those, one of the pieces that is so beautiful about the running public training plan is that you and I can do it no matter what fitness we're in at different stages of the year and both get what we need out of it. Mm-hmm. Because I would just be doing easy aerobic work on my Thursdays right now if I was doing my Tuesday quality. And you would be cranking it up a little bit and getting more skill work. And we would both be moving the needle, to use the Kirk Dewan phrase, at the same rate because we're getting what we specifically need. Yeah, I was actually just going to use that phrase in my next talking point. Use it again. Double down. Well, I will double down. It's it's more like the midweek long run is a chance. Like if you look at this, the whole scheme of your week and you say, you know, th- this is a, a game of consistency over time. And we take little, you know, fractions of percentages can go a long ways, especially in long races. Let's say I'm 1% better. Well, that doesn't sound very good. Well, if you're 1% better over a three-hour race, here you're minutes ahead of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like the midweek long run is one of those opportunities that's left on the table for a lot of athletes. They do short runs and they do easy runs, which is great. You need to. There is just a little room to to wedge a little more in. Maybe that next percent that you need, which means just like sneaking in a little more time on feet at some point that has some sort of purpose to focus on a weakness or a skill you're trying to improve. And so... It's like moving the needle just a tiny bit, mm-hmm. whereas otherwise that needle movement is left on the table. And that's why I like it. I think like in a game of percentages, which this is, there's such incremental gains we make in this sport once you've been training for a long time. That's just another way, like you're looking around saying, where can I improve? How can I be better? We'll tack on an extra 20 minutes to one of your runs each week and say, I actually have a focus for today instead of just stepping out your door, putting your shoes on and running the same route you always do on a recovery day. And, and that will move the needle so slightly for you. It will. And that's what I really like about it. And, it. and again, it works both sides of the coin. For the athlete who's already training high volume, let's say you're doing 10 miles Monday through Friday and 20 Saturday. There's a good chance if you just tack on a few extra miles on one day, it tips you over. But if you back down one mile and you go eight or nine, eight or nine, 12, eight or nine, eight or nine, 20, you're going to get to the 12 and 20 more rested and able to get more out of it rather than existing in that zombie state all the time. But if you're like Mm -hmm. you and I who come from historically lower mileage backgrounds with more intensity and you know you struggle with endurance, keeping your volume the same and like you said, adding 20 to 30 minutes one day 
every single one of those minutes is inherently positive to you because it's a little fatiguing. And I found that when I add that midweek long run in, I see tangible fitness improvements. I feel much more confident racing longer distances, following the exact same plan and simply lengthening that Thursday run makes me significantly more resistant to long runs and long races. And that's yeah. anecdotal, but it's powerful enough to me that I keep it in there. Well, that's two people. It's anecdotal for me and you. So that's a hundred percent. We're batting a hundred there. hundred percent of every single person on this podcast today. Exactly. The other thing I like about it before we stop selling you on it, cause we don't have much left to say on this is that um, the, the way it's great is like it, it can be used honestly as a semi-quality day or for those rock stars who can handle it, you can almost use it as a, as a quality day. But for those who, you know, did one of those like swing for the fences workouts on a Tuesday and it's still just wrecked on Thursday, you just use it as an extended recovery run. It's like the most flexible day in your week that from week to week, like for me, when I'm in a training pattern like that, one Thursday, I may slog and be like, this is miserable. My legs are mm-hmm. rocks with boat anchors tied to them. And then the next week I might be like, you know, Tuesday wasn't so damaging. And now I want to embrace this and attack some of my uphills. And it's just like the biggest flex day. We could almost just call it a flex day as far as like so many variables. Yeah. But it's just like, it's like that one, like I said, I keep going back to like your freebie. It's like, here's your free pass today. Player's choice, use it as needed. But whatever we do, we're putting a little more time on our feet with whatever we choose to do with this player's choice. Um, and I'm not telling you to go out and grind every Thursday nope. as like a quality day, but I'm saying there's some flexibility there. Um, and that's what I like about it more than anything. And I feel like if I look at my season, say every other time I hit a midweek long run, it is aerobic and easy because I'm smashed from something or I have a race coming up and I want to take it easy or I'm like, damn, legs are ready to go. Let's burn a little hotter than normal. And they probably split 50, 50 on that. And that's what I like about that day. Nobody's putting rules on me that day, Bracken. No. And it allows you to do what you enjoy or what you need. When I'm really fit, that run turns into a cut down more often than not. Me too. I start rolling. I might get through 60 and close hard the last 10 or 20. And it doesn't take much out of you, but you feel good. And it gets you in the mind of I'm getting towards championship season. I close down races. Right now, when I got done with my last three and a half hour hill workout, my hip flexors announced that they weren't up to par. And so on these, I started doing a lot of lunge and sled work on these days. Sure. And I did one today, actually, because I do a midweek long run on Monday before this race. And then Wednesday, I'll do something short and just quick turnover a little bit. So I did a midweek long run today. Okay. How far did you go? How long did you go? I did. Well, I, I ended up cutting it short. I did my midweek long run. I only today. did 60 minutes today. Because it's race week. Yeah. So my midweek long run was 60 minutes and I did four minutes of sled, push down, pull back, push down, pull back, just working on glutes and hip drive the whole time. And then running at 15% for six minutes at about aerobic threshold or just above. Hmm. It was probably not even just, I was definitely above aerobic threshold on the runs. Six minutes, 15% incline at five miles per hour. That'll pop it. Yeah, but it was controlled, but I was doing every step with slightly fatigued legs because fatigued legs because of the fatigued. I like fatigued. I was fatigued over a little bit. Yeah, you were fatigued over. Yep. But it was a beautiful thing because I got to work on strengthening and reminding I'm about to be power hiking a lot in five, six days. 
And so I was just going through the motion of pushing the sled steady with each leg doing the same amount of work and then get up and watch myself in the mirror while I run at a a moderately fast effort and just keep the form together, see what starts to sag and remind my body how it should be working. And 60 minutes of work, but it was good quality skill work. Yeah. So you're right. It's so flexible. So flexible. You get whatever you need done on that day. As you're tapering, you know, I actually throw that in the week of races early in the week too. Sometimes I like that mm-hmm. as you're tapering, it'll, it'll look a little different when you're high volume, it'll look a little different, but like, that's the point always looks a little different. When I go back to my running logs, my, my Thursdays, I historically, once we're in season, I stick to that. Yeah. I'll look a little different and that's kind of the yeah. glory of it. All right, Bracken, anything else about the midweek long run you want to dissect? This is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe not self-fulfilling, but an ironic one. We say this is the least we have to say about it because it's such a little niche, small piece of the equation. And here we are just having to rein ourselves in because we could talk for another hour on the midweek long run. It's kind of true. It's, it's, it's foolish, but it's darn it, Kirk. It's endearing. We love this little run. It's, it's one of my favorite runs. And, and maybe the last thing I need to say about it is that it changes the mentality of my week. Because otherwise you go from Tuesday to Saturday doing the same thing. Right. Recovery aerobic Tuesday, Wednesday, easy aerobic Thursday, easy aerobic Friday, run Saturday. For you and I, for people that are wired like us, the process is exciting. Yeah. But for the casual everyday runner, do they want to do the same run three times in a row? Maybe not. So this day, suddenly now you have Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday as different mentally engaging days. Now you're only doing two to three other days where you even have to like slog through anything. So it's, it yep. keeps things spicy. It's like a date night. Ooh, a date night. You don't know anything about that. You guys still have date nights? Oh yeah. Good. Yeah. We, Kirk, I have a, I have a theory in relationships. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm listening. It's called date your wife. You have to date your wife. You just can't be married to her. And so you have to be intentional about getting dates in for you and your wife. You hear that from time to time. Do you think um do you think bringing your wife or your girlfriend out deer hunting with you counts as a date or is that like to It depends on your relationship. But the things you did to woo her in the like the things that made her want to commit to you in the first place are the things you got to refresh with regularity. If part of your relationship was getting into the woods, you don't ditch her for the boys. You bring her from time to time. That's how it started. You got it. Smart man what you got to do. You got to date her. Don't be a partnership. Make her your girlfriend again. Yeah, baby. We uh, want to make a quick uh, question or plug at the same time. Bracken um, gave me a little bit of a fashion show before we started recording. He has these oh, real yeah. sexy running public racing singlets that are designed not only for road running or trail running, but also for OCR, meaning they're very, um, that, that, Compression material that isn't compression that lets you breathe and stretches nice yet fits tight yet isn't restricting at all. Um, we got some race singlets samples, three of them, right, Bracken? That I think we got. Um, they're nice. They're real nice. I mean, you look good in that shit, Bracken. And that says something. It sure does. We're so we're contemplating ordering a round of these things, but um, we need to know if there's an interest level and in actually repping out on course, something other than our t-shirts, which, you know, we appreciate. So um, if there's an interest in singlets, chime in really quick if you can, and we'll, we'll put an order through. Um, and especially on the women's front too, we would need to hear what the interest level is there because um, 
because, well, Bracken ordered man singlets. Well, and they're expensive. They're expensive, right? They're they're good. They're good quality, high quality racing and performance kit that is sublimated dyed on there. So, like, you're going to be looking at sixty to seventy dollars for one of these things. So it's it's the kind that. We don't want to order 300 of them and then have 40 people want them. We want a, a good, accurate representation of who wants it. And maybe we'll do a poll on Instagram, but yeah. we want to make sure that people can get it without us taking a bath. But they are dope. Um, and we haven't official, uh, like official, officialized which ones we want to go with, but the samples we got are sweet. So just push pause and creep into our DMs and say yay or nay um, on that. If you think of it, that's it. It's good thinking. All right. I think so. We'll see you for our our coach's philosophy episode this week. We have had a, a golden goose we haven't been able to track down due to schedules and then technology issues two weeks ago. But we think we've got him locked up and he's going to bring a very good, unique brainiac slash field tested mm-hmm. approach to this talk. And I'm excited for it. So we'll see you there Friday. See you there, folks. Mm-hmm.